This afternoon, I hope to address an aspect of Murray's theological method, an aspect that is debated in reform circles today. How do we relate the claims of historical theology? How do we relate confessional concerns to the task of systematic theology? What role does historical theology and confessional tradition play in our development of our systematics? Murray's position on this has, I believe, been misunderstood. It's not uncommon to see Murray portrayed as falling into the trap of biblicism, either positively, if you like that, or negatively, if you don't like that. But on the assumption that biblicism is used to designate a systematic theology that is disconnected from historical theology and that disregards the boundaries of confessional theology, I don't believe that's a description that Murray would recognize of himself. So I think I have 45 to 50 minutes to present Murray's perspective on these things and then some time for question and answer. I would, however, remind you of John Murray's famous antipathy to question and answer. <laughs> o. Palmer Robertson in Cambridge said recently that in his three years of lectures from John Murray, only one student ever dared to ask a question. And the response to that question was, I'm coming to that in my next lecture. So while it's tempting to imitate Murray and deny all questions, I would genuinely love engagement with the topics that we're discussing today. So please, uh, when it comes to that time, ask any questions. So four things uh, in terms of uh, John Murray and the topic we have. Murray's context, his upbringing. Murray's understanding of systematic theology. Murray's understanding of tradition and Murray's understanding of the confessions. First, Murray's context and his upbringing. Why do I begin here when we're looking at his understanding of systematics? Well, in general, the child is the father of the man, but particularly Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When you grow up in a strong tradition, that influences and shapes you all your days. And John Murray grew up in a profoundly confessional tradition, that of the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. That denomination had seceded from the Free Church of Scotland in 1893 after the Free Church of Scotland had refused to rescind the declaratory act that loosened her attachment to the Westminster Standards. Murray was born when this denomination was two years old and he was raised in its confessional atmosphere. His father was an elder, particularly noted for his godliness, with a local newspaper commenting on the death of Murray's father. The death of Mr. Alexander Murray marks the end of an epoch in Highland religious life, the last of the old-time saints whose influence was dominant in our communities a hundred years ago. A genuine saint to whom the unseen was closer than breathing. And growing up with this man, Alexander Murray, as your father, meant that every morning and evening there was family worship, psalm singing, scripture reading and prayer. And more relevantly for our present purpose, 
it meant that John Murray was brought up on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Use was made of it in the home, in the church, in the day school. It was an educational process of priceless value. And that's the, the comments of John J. Murray, no relation of John Murray. And in terms of uh, Murray in uh, the Free Presbyterian Church, he began his training for the ministry with them under Donald Beaton, a man who wrote, uh, in my estimation, what is still one of the most theologically insightful treatments of the Marrow controversy. And Donald Beaton, the great theologian of the early Free Presbyterian Church, when he began training Murray in 1923, uh, Murray's age 25, sees great potential in Murray and sends Murray off to train at Princeton where he's going to be uh, more stretched than uh, he would be in Scotland. And Murray studies and learns his theology under uh, C.W. Hodge, Gerhardus Voss, Machen and others. Mol uh, Murray was moulded uh, by men steeped in the Reformed tradition, men like Machen who were set for the defence of the faith. And I say all this about Murray's background to emphasise that as Murray emerged from Princeton, he was thoroughly grounded by his upbringing and by his theological training in the Reformed tradition. And after he graduated from Princeton, he spent another year in Edinburgh studying historical theology uh, before he embarked on his lifetime of teaching for a year at Princeton and then uh, for the rest of his life at Westminster. His whole upbringing, as much as anyone's ever was, was designed to tether him uh, to confessional reformed theology. Um, just one other kind of anecdote about Murray. There's some stories I always tell when I'm talking on Murray, and this is one of them, so apologies. Uh, Murray fought in the First World War, and in the First World War, uh, he lost one of his eyes. Um, and so uh, just an insight into Murray's character. He was the stereotypical doer Scotsman, always very serious. That picture on his collected writings is exactly what he was like. Um, and so it led to uh, the quip about how do you tell which was John Murray's glass eye? And the answer was, it's the one with a hint of a smile in it. <laughs> so Murray was a serious man, serious about theology. So that's his upbringing. Murray then in systematic theology. How did Murray view his life calling? What did he think he was called to do as a professor of systematic theology? Set out very clearly in his essay, Systematic Theology, volume four of his collected writings. He defines systematic theology. It is the task of setting forth in an orderly and coherent manner the truth respecting God and his relations to men and the world. The truth is derived from the data of revelation. And revelation comprises all these media by which God makes himself and his will known to us. And what Murray is saying is the task of systematic theology is to take the collective revelation of God, to bring that revelation together and to present it as a coherent, consistent, logically ordered whole. And while Murray included within that natural theology, his chief interest was scripture. He held very clearly that it is foundational to the task of systematic theology to receive scripture as the inspired, inerrant word of God. 
Systematic theology, when true to its task, must regard scripture as that which scripture claims for itself, namely that it is the word of God. He argued that the Bartian divergence in the estimate of what the Bible is, is radical. And it will have to be admitted that theologies emanating from those opposing views of the witness of scripture must be proportionately divergent. For Murray, if we begin with different views of what scripture is and how it functions, of necessity, that will lead to a divergent theology. And Murray was very pointed on the foundational role of scripture in systematics. Systematics has deserted its vocation when it has been divorced from meticulous attention to biblical exegesis. Systematics becomes lifeless and fails in its mandate just to the extent which it has become detached from exegesis. It is the word that is living and powerful. As well as that insistence on scripture, Murray also insisted on the necessity of personal faith for the task of systematic theology. It is a travesty, he said, for a man not knowing the power of the revelation of Scripture to pose as an expositor of it. The Scriptures cannot be properly interpreted without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, nor can they be properly studied apart from the sealing witness of the Spirit. And related to that, Murray refused to separate theology from living. Doctrine and practice are integrally related. Practice exemplifying our faith is drawn from the spring of doctrine. And for those of us versed in the traditional reformed dogmatic systems, what Murray is saying is the two traditional fundamental principles of theology, the external principle of revelation and the internal principle of faith, they are fundamental to the theological task. And also, so far so traditional is Murray's insistence that systematics is the pinnacle of a theological curriculum. He says it is the most noble of all studies because its provenance is the whole counsel of God. It seeks as no other discipline to set forth the riches of God's revelation in the orderly and embracive manner, which is its peculiar method and function. All other departments of theological discipline contribute their findings to systematic theology, and it brings all the wealth of knowledge derived from these disciplines upon the more inclusive systematization which it undertakes. And what Murray is saying there is all the other departments of a seminary ultimately are there contributing to the systematic theological task. Murray doesn't see systematics operating in isolation from anything else that forms part of a seminary curriculum. Rather, it is there to bring the cohesive whole together. Just a few comments on Murray and biblical theology before we move on to historical theology. Murray says that the scope of systematics is broader than that of biblical theology because systematics also includes general revelation. But granting that, the key difference is one of method. Biblical theology deals with the data of special revelation from the standpoint of its history. Systematic theology deals with the same as a totality, as a finished product. 
And Murray explains how biblical theology relates to systematics as follows. Systematics must coordinate the teaching of particular passages and systematize this teaching under the appropriate topics. But it cannot coordinate and relate the teaching of particular passages without knowing what that teaching is. So exegesis is basic to its objective. Okay, exegesis is important. Where does biblical theology feature? Well, biblical theology recognizes that special revelation did not come from God in one mass at one particular time. Special revelation came by process. It is this principle that bears directly upon exegesis. Exegesis interprets particular passages, but these occur within a particular period of revelation. And it is the principle, this principle, which guides biblical theology that must also be applied in exegesis. Thus, biblical theology is regulative of exegesis. And what Murray is saying is, systematics starts with exegesis. But to exegete a particular passage, we must be sensitive to where that passage occurs in redemptive history. And so systematics needs biblical theology to help and augment its exegesis. But Murray was aware that biblical theology was sometimes set in opposition to systematics. Murray responded by stating systematic theology was just as biblical as biblical theology. While it did have to deal with abstract and philosophical matters, while it did group matters logically, Murray said, there is nothing in that, which hinders, far less prevents, sustained confrontation with the living word of the living God in systematic theology. Thus, whilst systematics was setting out matters in a logical order, setting forth a coherent system of truth, the Bible is the principal source of revelation. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, systematics is the discipline which more than any other aims to confront us men with God's own witness so that in its totality, it may make that impact upon our hearts and minds by which we shall be conformed to his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of the truth. So that is Murray on the systematic task exegetically rigorous, aided by all the disciplines of the seminary and aided by biblical theology. But then tradition and church history. If systematics is so rigorously exegetical as Murray proposes, if its exegesis is aided by biblical theology, if its goal is to confront men and women with the living and powerful word of God, what of church history? What of historical theology? Well, Murray recognizes that systematics does not begin anew each generation. Systematics is an enterprise that is dependent on what has gone before. Systematic theology is a development, Murray says, which arose in the course of history within the sphere of the church. The greatest contributions have been made by theologians. We think of Athanasius, Augustine, and Calvin, but neither these men nor their work can be understood or assessed apart from the history of the church. It is only because they occupied a certain place in history that they were able to contribute so significantly to the superstructure which we call theology. 
Ultimately, systematics is not the fruit of an isolated theologian wrestling with the page of scripture as if it dropped from heaven onto his lap. Rather, systematics is the ceaseless activity of the Holy Spirit in which individual theologians are but the spokesmen of this accumulating understanding which the Spirit of Truth has been granting to the church. And within this unceasing, ever ongoing task of systematics, there have been periods of great contribution and advance. The Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries, without question, the most notable. It was the golden age of precision and formulation. The theology that does not build upon these constructions or pretends to ignore them places a premium upon retrogression and dishonors the Holy Spirit by whose endowments and grace these epochal strides in understanding and presentation have been taken. What Murray is saying is systematics needs historical theology to build on the gifts that the Spirit has given to the church in terms of prior understanding. Murray was also alert to the pivotal role that heresies arising in history have played in sharpening the thought of the church. Heresy, he said, has always compelled the church to examine the deposit of revelation with more care, to set forth the truth in opposition to error, and to be awakened to greater vigilance against the inroads of unbelief. The example he gives is perhaps the most fatal error the church ever encountered was the Arian. The first ecumenical creed was the official answer of the church to that which struck at its foundation. And who that has jealousy for the biblical witness to the deity of Christ does not recognize the debt of gratitude we owe to the fathers of Nicaea. So while Murray is crystal clear on scripture as the only infallible rule of faith and practice, He never understood that sufficiency of scripture to mean we operate without seeking to use the helps that God has given to his church. Murray said, much else besides scripture is indispensable for our actual situation. That is the witness of the church. That is the Christian tradition. And there is the mass of Christian literature. Now, you'll likely know the oft-quoted statement of C.S. Lewis. It's a good rule after reading a new book, never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. And if you were to come to this lecture with Murray the Biblicist in your mind, you might think Murray would object to this statement or pass it over with indifference. But, Murray says, Mr. Lewis makes the much-needed but little-heeded plea for first-hand knowledge of the great classics of literature and, in particular, of theology, advice which, if followed, would do a great deal to correct the deterioration of intellectual vigor and of historical perspective that is the reality of much present-day practice. And in this vein, Murray believed in the value of reading the great works of patristic and later theology, Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm particularly being commended by him. And Murray also referred to a huge number of significant theologians in his writings, 
he didn't actually often reveal the sources he was using. But at times you can just bump into a passage where he suddenly references Wolabius, Ames, Ledecker, and Maastricht, Turretin, and calls them the classic Reformed theologians of the 17th century. Or if you read through Murray's chapter on sanctification, he cites virtually no one. And then at the end, you get this little suggested bibliography, including John Ball, Calvin, Robert Candlish, John Downame, James Fraser, Walter Marshall, John Owen, and J.C. Ryle. He didn't often show that he was plundering the depths of church history, but he was in everything that he wrote. So I'm suggesting, or more than suggesting, that John Murray should not be called a biblicist, should not be held up as a model of something close to biblicism. He clearly views systematics as building on what has gone before, not ignoring it. Historical theology, church history, is in that sense regulative of the systematic theological task. And I do want to notice one specific criticism of Murray, that he adopted a Calvin alone, or a Calvin against the Calvinist reading of Reformed theology. Now, it's right that Murray did notice a methodological difference between Calvin and those who followed him. But Murray was deeply aware that difference in method did not equate to difference in content. And as we'll see, he actually believed that by the time of the Westminster Assembly, Reformed theology had progressed beyond what Calvin was proposing. Murray explicitly states, it is true that Calvin's method differs considerably from that of the classic Reformed systematizers of the 17th century. But this difference of method does not of itself afford any warrant for a construction of Calvin that places him in sharp contrast with the more analytically developed formulations of Reformed theology in the century that followed. Murray knew how to read history. However, statements like the following from Murray have generated some debate. We may not suppose that theological construction ever reaches definitive finality. There is a danger of stagnant traditionalism. We must be alert to this danger. As it is true that the Reformed Church must be ever reforming, so it is true that Reformed theology must be ever reforming. Or again, when any generation is content to rely upon its theological heritage and refuses to explore for itself the riches of divine revelation, declension is already underway. Heterodoxy will be the lot of the succeeding generation. Or again, theology must always be undergoing reformation. However archaeotectonic may be the systematic concerns of any one generation, there always remains the need for correction and reconstruction so the structure may be brought into close approximation to Scripture. And it is statements like these that have been used to suggest Murray was, in a sense, a biblicist. But let me suggest that these statements should not be read in isolation from Murray's overarching commitment to the value of the Reformed tradition. 
And indeed, when he was making these statements, Murray felt he was simply echoing the tradition. He wrote in context of Richard Sibbs, Sibbs and all true Puritans were fully and properly cognizant that much progress in understanding and application of the scripture still lay ahead of the church of God. And in this, uh, Murray, I think, is correct. One example, just from George Gillespie, the great Scottish member of the Westminster Assembly. George Gillespie said, I assert as a most necessary truth that as our knowledge at best in this world is imperfect, so it ought to be our desire and endeavor to grow in the knowledge of the mind of Christ, to seek after more and more light, to take in and not shut out further light. I also believe that toward the evening of the world there shall be more light and knowledge shall be increased and many hid things in scripture better understood. When the Jews shall be brought home and the spirit of grace and illumination more abundantly poured forth. Now leaving to one side Gillespie's eschatological expectations. What he is saying is almost exactly the wording of Murray. There is more light to break forth from the living and abiding word of God. So granting that Murray sought progress, this was not without reference to the theological tradition. Says Murray, there is a truly Catholic tradition to which all due respect is to be paid and for which we should thank God. The Catholic tradition is enshrined particularly in the ecumenical creeds and is found also in the line of orthodox interpreters and theologians through the centuries. Further, Murray says, there is also a Protestant tradition. There is in like manner a Reformed tradition. It is enshrined in the Reformed creeds, theology, worship and practice. It is in this tradition we especially glory and we glory in it because we believe that it is the purest repristination and expression of apostolic Christianity. It is in this tradition that we move. It is the viewpoint we cherish, foster and promote. Nevertheless, systematic theology must advance and tradition is always subject to the scrutiny and test of scripture that's the balance that murray sought and then murray on confessional theology murray was clear on the need for confessions creedal formulation he said is but one way of giving the sense of scripture in succinct form and he believed confessions have been found necessary by the church in all ages. The church in the maintenance and defense of the faith found it necessary to formulate her faith in creedal statement to guard against the incursions of error. Murray argued that a simple confession of belief in scripture as the word of God was insufficient to guard against heresy. For the most basic contradictions of unbelief may coexist with a watertight doctrine of scripture. An Arian view of Christ's person, Murray said, may be entertained by one affirming the most orthodox doctrine of scripture. As such, the great ecumenical creeds were of significant importance. It is, he said, with profound gratitude to God that we should remember the issue to which these centuries of struggle came in 451 AD, 
when at Chalcedon an ecumenical council was able to arrive at a statement of faith that fixed and conserved precious truth regarding the person of Christ. So while the ecumenical creeds can be built on, like Murray felt Calvin did, nonetheless they fixed and conserved truth. But in his writings, Murray focused most on the Reformation creeds. He said the Reformation was the most prolific period of creedal composition. And can we discount the fact that this activity was coincident with the greatest revival of faith since the days of the apostles? Writing confessions was the fruit of this revival of faith and its expression. Murray held the Westminster standards in the highest regard as, sorry to say it, the best of all the Reformed confessions. He spoke of the productions of the Westminster Assembly as the unsurpassed documents that are the abiding memorials of its labour. On the Shorter Catechism, I know of no compendium of Christian truth that is more excellent than the Shorter Catechism. Murray defines the whole Westminster standards in glowing terms. The Westminster Assembly gave to us some of our most priceless possessions. Language fails to assess the blessing that God in his sovereign providence and grace bestowed upon his church through these statements of the Christian faith. The influence exerted by them is beyond human calculation. Other men labored and we have entered into their labors. The lines have fallen unto us in pleasant places. We have a goodly heritage. And Murray repeatedly emphasized the position in history the Westminster Standards had and how these men of God drew from the labors that went before them. The Westminster divines, he says, were the heirs of the labors of God's servants for 15 centuries. As these servants of God had striven to set forth the truth of the Christian faith and guard it, the Westminster Assembly willingly and gratefully recognized itself as the debtor to all the wisdom and light that God in his providence had caused to be deposited in the expositions and formulations of the past. In particular, the Westminster divines were the heirs of all the other evangelical creeds of the Reformation. This meant that the Westminster Confession and Catechisms are the crown of the greatest age of confessional exposition. No other similar documents have concentrated in them and formulated with such precision so much of the truth embodied in the Christian revelation. I mentioned earlier how Murray believed that in general the Reformed faith had positively developed from Calvin to the time of Westminster. So far from falling into some Calvin versus the Calvinist's thesis, Murray positively appraises Westminster. And here's one evidence. Reformed theology, he said, had by the 1640s attained to a maturity that could not be expected a hundred or even 75 years earlier. Controversies had developed in the interval between the death of Calvin, for example, and the Westminster Assembly that compelled theologians 
to give reformed doctrine fuller and more precise definition. In many circles today, there is the tendency to depreciate, if not deplore, the finesse of theological definition which the confession exemplifies. This, Murray says, is an attitude to be depreciated. And Murray was clear that there remained a category difference between confessions or the Westminster Confession and Scripture. The Bible alone, he said, is the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The Westminster Confession has no normative character or authority in and of itself. Its whole value resides in the conformity of its teaching with the word of God, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. However, precisely because they do have conformity with the word of God, the Westminster standards can never be retrenched from. Murray said, it is folly to think that we can retain or reclaim Christian culture on any lower level than that which the Westminster Assembly defined. Christian thought may never be stagnant. When it ceases to be progressive, it declines. But we do not make progress by disregarding our heritage. We build upon it, or more accurately, we grow from it. However, Murray noted that to appraise the Westminster Confession as if it was perfect and not susceptible to improvement or correction would be to accord it an estimate and veneration that belongs only to the word of God. He himself suggested some areas for improvement in the Westminster standards. The most controversial is John Murray's thoughts on covenant. If, he says, the term covenant is used for the covenant of works, the designation in the shorter catechism, covenant of life, is preferable. Nevertheless, while Murray did make suggestions on how to, in minor areas, he thought, improve the Westminster standards, he was absolutely clear that, quote, any amendment necessary does not affect the system of truth set forth in the confession. And why did Murray say he was proposing nothing that affected the system of truth in the Westminster Standards? Because he held that as a confessional systematician, he did not have a right to propose any theological positions which did not accord with the system of doctrine in the Westminster Standards. He said, the creed is the bond of fellowship a bulwark against the incursion of errors, a testimony to the faith once delivered unto the saints, an instrument for the preservation of purity and peace. The persons subscribing to that creed are bound to adhere to its teachings as long as they enjoy the privileges accruing from that subscription. And Murray himself, near the end of his life, wrote from Scotland to the Presbyterian Guardian, regarding exceptions to the teaching of the Westminster Standards on the Sabbath day. He said, to maintain that this sustained and explicit block of teaching is out with the scope of the ordination pledge is surely to renounce what is involved in receiving and adopting the confession and catechisms. The gravest ethical issues are here at stake. A confessional creed is a bond of fellowship 
as well as an instrument of witness. It is one thing to question incidental remarks. It is another to diverge from a principial position woven into the texture of confessional documents and belonging to the system formulated. So Murray held that the systematic task for those in confessional churches was bounded by the system of doctrine. Before closing the section on confessional theology, just to note that Murray strongly believed in the fundamental unity of the Reformed confessional tradition. While he did place the crown on Westminster's head, that was not to depreciate anything else. On the issue of reprobation, Murray said, Dort and Westminster are at one. The doctrine is the same, and this fact demonstrates the undissenting unity of thought on a tenet of the faith that is a distinguishing mark of our Reformed heritage. Murray went on to say, this is but one example of what is true in respect of the system of doctrine espoused by the Reformed churches. There is what must be called the consensus of Reformed theology. And Murray did not view himself at liberty to depart from that consensus. So, We've seen Murray, we've seen the task of systematics, we've seen church history, we've seen his view on the role of confessions. I offer some conclusions. Murray asserted strongly the standard principia of theology in the Reformed tradition. Scripture was the foundation of all systematic theology. Exegesis is the lifeblood of dogmatics and personal heartfelt faith is foundational in the interpretive act. And so I believe that's a significant caution against current trends in the reformed and evangelical world where common cause is being made in theological matters with those who profoundly disagree with the reformed doctrine of scripture and with the fundamental tenets of the faith, such as justification by faith alone the great principles of theology, the word of God for what it is, and the importance of living personal faith matter. Murray rigorously asserted his desire for systematics to be a direct engagement with the text of scripture. Systematics is not fundamentally a summary of what others have said. It is the truth of the word of God. And that is surely correct for Westminster Confession 110, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. However, while Westminster Confession 31.4, all synods or councils since the apostles' time, where their general or particular may err, and many have erred, and while therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, it remains true that they are to be used as a help in both. And Murray used historical theology as a help in his systematics. He was deeply embedded in the Reformed tradition. I doubt that many systematics professors 
other than those here at Puritan. Could run off a chapter on covenant theology, citing in a way that evidences genuine interaction and understanding of Bullinger, Ursinus, Hodge, Calvin, Junius, Rollock, Polanus, Perkins, Preston, Turretin, Zanchius, Ball, Cuxaeus, Edward Lee, Rutherford, John Owen, digress into the Neonomian controversy in England in the late 17th century, Witsius, Bavinck, Heidegger, Leiden Synopsis, Van Maastricht, Goodwin, Thomas Jackham, Thomas Boston, and Berkhoff. When Murray said we are to build on what has gone before, his building wasn't always right, but he did the hard yards to at least understand what he was trying to build from. Murray also sought to advance the tradition. There is much land still to be possessed. But as Murray explicitly said on many occasions, his aim when he was offering fresh insights was not to undo what had been done before, was not to take the tradition backwards, but forwards, onwards to perfect, more perfect conformity with God's word. For an evaluation of whether Murray was successful, uh, hold on until the book emerges. But I would add that while I appreciate Murray's sentiment that there is much land yet to be possessed, without Murray's grounding in the tradition, without his heritage and his learning, his call to advancement could and did in lesser hands go tragically wrong. As an ecclesiastical office bearer, Murray felt himself completely bound by the system of doctrine he swore to uphold. While he felt at liberty to have what were, in his eyes, verbal differences with some of the wording of the Westminster Standards, he allowed himself and others no deviation from the system of doctrine in the Standards. If his theological musings had led him to differ from the doctrine of the Westminster Standards. That, in his eyes, would have been to transgress the sacred bond of fellowship he had with his fellow office bearers. Confessional considerations bounded the freedom that he felt he had as a systematician in his ecclesiastical setting. So let me suggest in closing that Murray's vision of a rigorously exegetical systematic theology, drawing on the insights of biblical theology, grounded in the insights of historical theology, and confessionally bound by doctrinal standards, is a beautiful and fruitful vision of the integration of systematic, historical, and confessional concerns. Thank you.